Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Padolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello there and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Up My Hockey. And if you are new to the program, you have a great one today. And if you are uh, a veteran listener, uh, we're going to cover something new today. And we're interviewing Dave Michaud. Dave Michaud is the owner and president of the Port Alberni Bulldogs. The Port Alberni Bulldogs are a team in the BC Junior Hockey League, which is one of the best developmental leagues and one of the... Uh, playgrounds for aspiring division one college athletes a lot of a lot of the players from from the bc junior league go on to play in the ncaa a lot of them go on to uh canadian university and many go on to the nhl as well and and dave is an owner and uh and president of a team there dave's story is super compelling he he is really a testament to being part of the process being a uh, putting in the work and the relationship side of the game. He, he started in, in the Okanagan Valley here as a color guy for the Kelowna Rockets. Uh, we covered that, how he got involved in that. He then transitioned into being a GM of a major midget program, which then transitioned him into being uh, on the agent side of the business with CAA, with um, working with, for names like J.P. Barry and Pat Brisson, who are, who are big names in, in the uh, agency world of the NHL level. And then he got into uh, being involved with the Penticton V's in the BC Junior Hockey League, where he was uh, director of player development and also on the corporate side of sales, uh, which positioned him to take on his new role, which is now owner and president of the Port Alberni Bulldogs. So every step of the way, Dave was learning something. Dave was putting tools in his toolbox, and he was committed uh, to making himself better so he can now serve his team the best he can. This is a great episode for anyone who's interested about the BC Junior League, who's, who's interested about the recruitment side of putting together a hockey team about how you build a culture as a team and what he's looking for and really it's great to hear about the relationship side of the game and how important relationships are within the game and how it is such a relationship driven sport and uh and how we build trust with people and how we build accountability and integrity and uh and dave d does a lot to to share his perspective on that and how he's building things there in port alberni so I learned a lot from this infra, from this episode, from this interview. Dave is a great guy. Uh, I love the, uh, I mean, rags to riches is the wrong way to put it. But, you know, just put in the work, put in the work, put in the work. Um, learn the skill, learn his craft, uh, develop the relationships and the network. And now he's responsible for, uh, for a junior A program in one of the best developmental leagues in, in North America. So without further ado, I give you Dave Michaud. So just a quick note here before we get started that David's microphone for this interview was not cooperating 100% and we never know that until after the conversation is over. So we were able to minimize some of the inadequacies in post-production, which is great. I uh, just want you to be aware that, uh, you know, when we are doing these interviews over 
over Zoom or over another technology that it's tough to get perfect all the time. So although we want to maintain a high standard here on this show, and that's definitely something that we that I that I'm serious about, uh, I did feel that this conversation was worthwhile uploading and, and presenting to you guys because there's a lot of value in in what David had to, has to say and what we discussed. So just a heads up, the audio is not 100% perfect, but I think you can uh, bear with it and enjoy the conversation. Thank you. All right, here we are with Dave Michaud. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today on Up My Hockey. Thanks for having me, Jason. No, I appreciate it. It's kind of a crazy time here to be talking. I know you're in a great neck of the woods there in, in Souk, uh, British Columbia, there on the island, and I'm stuck in this little mini paradise in Vernon, but life is still a little a little different right now. We should all be watching playoff hockey, but instead we're, we're doing interviews like this. I was trying to say, uh, I sent out a tweet the other day saying, seeing as we're getting ripped off of playoff beards, should we uh, maybe consider quarantine beards? But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a, obviously a strange time. I feel really, really grateful to be stuck where I'm stuck. I, I tell my girlfriend that all the time that, uh, you know, we're literally a, a two minute walk out the front door to a, a beautiful ocean little walk. And, uh, you know, I feel pretty isolated out here. So I'm not sure how I'd feel if I was in a, a 33rd floor condo in downtown Toronto or something. But uh, Yeah, exactly. We're, we're, my heart goes out okay. to everyone in New York and in those places where, uh, you know, places are small and there's not much places to go. And so we are blessed here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it does give us an opportunity to talk, which I appreciate. And, and I really want to look forward to speaking with you, Dave, just because, you know, you've you've touched so many different aspects of the game and that's really what we're what we're about here is like having the discussion about what it takes to have hockey be great you know and and now your your current role there as as president of the bulldogs uh, i know a lot of the guys that are listening here and are talking to me or guys that i work with either you know are, are considering you know the bcj or the whl and what the best route is for them and and how to navigate all these camps come fall and all the invites and all that stuff there's a, there's a lot for parents and players so i definitely want to get into that but I want to rewind back to the early 2000s when and got involved with the Kelowna Rockets in in a radio capacity. So was that what you did back east? Were you a radio guy before you got here? Oh, I was uh, I was a dumb kid back east and uh, looking for uh, for a change and decided uh, I had a friend who moved to Kelowna, BC in, in the early 2000s and said, hey, man, you got to come out here. This place is paradise. And uh I had an ex-girlfriend at the time. I said, you know, I think I need a little space. And I said, well, how about I'm moving to BC? Is that enough space for you? And who, who knew who, how long this adventure was, was going to be? And, uh, you know, here we are 20-some years later. But uh, I moved to the Okanagan sight unseen. I had no idea what my plan was. Uh, and I ended up getting into radio sales uh, with, uh, with the group at Sun FM at the time. And uh that was it, just having some fun, but but was always a, a huge junior hockey fan. I, I grew up in Ontario, watched the Sudbury Wolves, and, and so when I had the opportunity to start going to Kelowna Rockets games, the, the company that I worked for had a suite and, and would often invite, you know, clients and stuff. But, uh, so I was always first to say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go and I'll host the suite and, and watch the games. And so, uh, you know, Regan Bartell, the, the longtime voice of the Kelowna Rockets, and I just sort of hit it off in the newsroom one day and started talking shop and, and uh, rarely a day went by where we didn't, you know, have some sort of back and forth about the Rockets and what was happening. And, 
you know, as, as fate would have it one day, his, his color guy at the time uh, had a, a little bout of laryngitis and uh, had to had to sit out the weekend. And, and Regan said, hey, I couldn't think of anybody else to, to maybe fill in. Would you be interested? And I thought, oh, sure. And, and so uh, that was uh, that was all I needed to be bit by the hockey bug again was uh, was getting in that broadcast booth and uh, uh, seeing the games up hand and getting to meet the players and it was it was really a fun way to sort of get back into the game. That's crazy. So you actually took over that guy's uh, job? Yeah. Well, so it's it's kind of funny how it worked out. A, a few weeks later, uh, fully recovered from the laryngitis, but he had to go away on a business trip. And we said, "Hey, would you love to do it again?" And and so I. I filled in and I think I ended up going on a road game or two with, with Regan towards the end of the season and then that summer he asked if I'd be interested in, uh, in doing it so my timing was actually quite awful because this was right at the end of the Memorial Cup run and so my first official season with the Kona Rockets was uh, uh, right after all the good stuff happened in 2007 so that was a, a pretty young team that uh, didn't have a lot of success I, I remember I was so excited I'll never forget they, they lost the season opener that year to the expansion uh, Chilliwack Bruins and I was on the road for that game and when we lost to that expansion team I looked at Regan and said oh, this could be a long year and, and sure enough it was but, but tons of fun lots of great memories right right Right, right. So how long were you um, in the broadcast booth there doing that? So I think three seasons, really. So, I, you know, I, I had an opportunity to uh, to really get to know the Hamilton family, which was uh, which was great. Uh, Bruce can be a scary guy at times, and, and you certainly knew uh, the games where you could maybe go over and say hi and maybe the games to shy away. But uh, I look back at the, the coaching staff uh, during my time that I was there, Jeff Truitt, uh, you know, became a, a real good friend. And, you know, I, Really, Jeff Truitt uh, probably should get more credit in my path in hockey because we just happened to be sitting on a Rockets bus one day. And, and, and guys have to understand, as a color commentator, you're not often welcome on the bus or behind the scenes. And, and so I just happened to be on the bus alone with Jeff Truitt one day and we were talking hockey. And, and uh, he said, you know, Mish, you're, you're a good guy. He goes, anytime you want to come, just let Regan know you can come on the bus and be a part of this. And uh, that really sort of ignited my fire. So it was, it was really uh, a cool experience to get to know Jeff Truitt. And then, then, then Ryan Huska took over and that relationship sort of continued. And so what, what a couple of great guys to, to get to learn from. Right. Yeah, exactly. I was, uh, and I think it's a testament to your personality from, I just watched, you know, your history and, and the stuff you've been involved in. I mean, to get invited to go on a radio booth, I mean, not everyone's going to put their hand up and say, heck yeah, I want to do that. You know, so you, uh, you know, you put yourself out there, you're, you're prepared to put yourself in some uncomfortable situations and, uh, and you have the personality type, I guess, and the, you know, and the, and the courage to be able to do something like that. And again, I mean, and that leads into being on the bus and being around those guys and, and all that stuff. It can be an intimidating situation. Um, so how, how was that life? I mean, who, who, what was it, Jeff, there that kind of took you under his wing a little bit and made you feel part of a part? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I think really Jeff Truitt was the start of that. Thanks. And then it became, yeah, and then Ryan Huska uh, sort of allowed that to, to sort of carry on. Uh, Jason so you know for me and, and then you're in Bruce Hamilton's trust and, and it wasn't so bad for the color guy to, to be around and, and uh, you know I think at the end of the day uh, you know people knew I was keen to help out and eager and, and sort of welcomed it right so it was, it was obviously at that time uh, you know an organization that had had so much success over a short period of time and, and you know to this day I credit 
uh, you know, the way I expect my teams to behave. Uh, a lot of that I learned from Bruce Hamilton and Jeff Truitt and Ryan Huska and, and, you know, just sort of the way you, you're supposed to carry yourself as a junior hockey player and the, the expectations. And uh, I always say to my guys, uh, we're going to have some fun, but we're here to work. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. That's, that's maybe that's a great, great question there, because for those who don't know who are listening, Bruce Hamilton, he's the owner of the uh, Kelowna Rockets and, and, you know, a lot of history, a lot of, a lot of success with the club. Um, but also just kind of made a pretty brazen move this season uh, with letting Adam Foote go, NHL Hall of Famer, with his kid on the team who's the captain, and uh, and let him go with, geez, it must have been a month left in the year and heading into the Memorial Cup. So Bruce obviously isn't afraid to make uh, to make some big moves and some big decisions if he feels like it. What, what was he like to work for or with? Uh, yeah, uh, like I say, I think intimidating would be the word. I think uh, often uh, he's referred to as the eagle uh, with his, his white hair and he sits up top in his perch at, uh, at Prospera Place and looks down and, uh, you know, so he always knew when the eagle was in the building and, uh, but he, he was a great man. And, and to this day, I mean, you know, essentially I work in a, you know, I suppose a competitive league, um, you know, Bruce will always pick up the phone and, and offers great advice and, you know, there's lots of, lots of give and take there if, if he needs help with a player obviously very very grateful that he would think of me as a, a resource to get him some information and uh you know vice versa as well certainly there's been players we've had an opportunity and in in, you know my short time in Port Alberni to consider and, and went to Bruce to, to see what his thoughts were as well so great guy to, to work with and be around and, and I just think it's the you know, the, the culture that I learned from Bruce Hamilton, you hear that word in hockey a lot, you know, whether the team's got a, a winning culture, a losing culture, what, what their uh, their aura is around them, Jason. And I just think I learned so much from, from what Bruce Hamilton expected of the Kelowna Rockets that, uh, you know, it was really evident to me quickly that I admired that. And, and that was something that I really wanted to take to heart. No, it's great. It's great you point that out because we've talked about that on this podcast before is that word culture of actually – done some keynotes on it before that it's 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 this word right that doesn't mean the same thing to everybody everyone wants it um not everyone and some people think that they have it when they don't you know and and i think i just think it's it's an interesting it's a really interesting thing and it is so important to the success of a franchise what were some of the biggest takeaways with developing that that culture that you got from from the time with the rockets i just think it's uh um you know, honestly, I think probably the biggest thing is just the, the, the level of standard that's expected. There's, there's a consistency that's expected and uh, there's no deviating from it. Um, you know, one thing I learned is there's lots of, of really good hockey players out there, but you look for good people too. And, and quite frankly, um, I think that's always the, the defining trait on, on whether a player is going to advance in the game. And, and I know I've, I've heard you touch on that on previous podcasts. Uh, good guys move on, you know, and, and the expectation certainly around the Kelowna Rockets was that everyone was going to buy in. And, and if you didn't, then you're on your way somewhere else. So uh, I think for me, I, I learned that um, it's okay to have high standards and it's okay to expect. And, and, you know, you have to understand that these are 16 to 20 year old young men who, you know, are going to fall down sometimes. So I don't, I don't think you can be necessary uh, militant in your expectations there has to be a little bit of forgiveness there um, you know but there's nothing wrong with having high standards and trying to hold them accountable to it right especially when you when you relay that message as part of being a bigger 
picture, right? That's something that's going to benefit them. This is, this is for their best interest, where they want to get to, right? The places they want to go and the contracts they want to sign. Um, and it's also best for the team, right? I, th- I, think that's, I think that's one of the things where the breaks down because when, when there is just a rule and guys view it as a rule for a rule or a standard for a standard, there can be some resistance there, right? But when the, when the story's told in a way that makes it appealing to them that this is going to help me, uh, I think there's, there's more buy-in that way, right? And then when you have the consistency See, on top of that, like you're saying, that's the key piece, because if you're not consistent, it's like anything else, like training your puppy dog, right? To go outside, go to the bathroom. If, if you forget a couple of days, you got to start all over again, right? So it's like, and it's hard to be consistent as a coach, as a, as a leader, even as a player. So, I mean, I love you talking about that because when I work with my guys individually, that, that is it. What is your personal standard? That's one of the first questions that we start with is, right? You mean like what, yeah. what level do you want to be and where do you think you need to change your standards? Because it, not only is it the same thing for a team, but it's also individual. And I'm sure you see that with your players as well. The guys that move on probably have a little higher level of expectation for themselves. Well, there's no question, Jason. And I mean, really, I think it's, you know, we're very fortunate to work with the level of athletes that we work with. I mean, at the end of the day, um, all these guys have a lot at stake, whether it's players at the Western League level who are, um, you know, trying to figure out their path or whether it's guys at our level. And, and quite frankly, for our guys, the, the stakes might be a little bit higher when they're younger and junior because they're trying to attract that NCAA scholarship at an early enough age and, and get that commitment. Well, you know, that's a school that's investing potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars in an athlete, and they're not going to do it if you're not a good kid or you're not a team player or, you know, the coach doesn't doesn't vouch for you. And, you know, the one thing I learned really early in hockey, and this would be another rocket, uh, Lauren Fry, uh, you know, their longtime director of player personnel, Lauren taught me right away that, you know, in hockey, you're only as good as your word. And and quite frankly, if you go around and you, you blow smoke up a player or, or a team or a scout or another manager and, you know, trying to move a player on who maybe doesn't deserve it or isn't quite as uh, good a person as you say they are, eventually that's going to catch up to you and you're going to get found out. So I'm, I'm always real honest with our players that I'm never going to lie to move me on. If, if there's something in your game that the other team needs to know about uh, or the school needs to really know about, they're going to know about it. Because at the end of the day, my reputation is, is paramount and, and uh, you know, it seems to work well. The players really do understand what's at stake and again their kids are going to trip every once in a while but you know for the most part we got some pretty dedicated athletes at, at this level of hockey so right now that's an interesting I mean I, I thought we'd get into this a little bit later but I think that that's a that's a good segue into into that aspect of trust because as you've heard I do talk about that a ton uh, like that the relationships you make within the game <clears throat> now as a player right now as a player with your assistant coaches with your coaches with the GM with the training staff like being a good teammate, being a good human is, is critical. I mean, there's so many stories where guys move on, even at the NHL level, because they made a bond with some coach that really liked them, right? And, and, and now elevated them because they trusted them and understood the person and knew that they were going to be a, a benefit uh, in the locker room. And maybe not a better player than somebody else, but just because that trust factor was there. So there's, there's benefits as a human being, there's benefits as an athlete to do that. But now when you're saying, and I 100% agree with you, that you have to keep your integrity intact, when you're talking to these players, I mean, with, when you're talking to these schools, these scouts that are calling you, um, now, and when you're being honest and the players know that, how do the players say if they have, like, how do you encourage that discussion now if they actually need some help somewhere? 
where they maybe are going to be vulnerable about something that, that, that's slowing them up, but they want to protect themselves too because they're worried that, you know, I don't want everyone to know about this. Like, how, how do you handle that type of a scenario? Well, and I think that's where, again, trust comes back into play. I mean, I, I'm never going to encourage my staff or myself personally and never going to sewer a player because there's maybe something going on in their personal life or, or you know, something like that. I, I, I mean, uh, if it's super serious, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of times these conversations come down to, you know, hey, look, there's something you need to know, like his his family life he has a little bit of issues but here's how we're working through it and most schools will go okay great thanks for the heads up that's great you know and that doesn't become public knowledge i mean quite frankly um you know everyone's in this together right and at the end of the day we all want to see these players move on to their best of their abilities and whether that's uh on a full ride scholarship to an NCAA double uh, division one program or moving on through the western league into the cis or the nhl one day uh we all do this because we want to help these players move on right so um but i think we've all come across some kids who maybe don't buy into the culture and aren't really a part of the solution and uh i think it's human nature there's there's players you want to help more than others right so i i feel i'm really lucky in the sense that uh I can honestly say that there's very few players that I don't have a lot of time for uh, in my in my history, um, and I think that just maybe goes back to a lot of, of who we try to bring into our programs, right? Yeah. I just I just don't bring in bad apples. I mean, they exist. We know it. Um, I just don't really want to be a part of that. I want to yeah. surround myself with 23 really focused, dedicated guys all pulling the rope in the same direction and, and it seems to, to work well. So yeah. uh, I think whenever you go to anything, Jason, where the, you know, the end goal is shared by everybody, then you're in a pretty good spot to begin with. Um, so again, it just goes back to trust. You, you got to trust the people you're talking to that will use the info properly. Um, and so you know when to share and not to share. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head when saying you want to be part of the solution. And when I talk to players, I really encourage that dialogue, that communication. I think the, the, the environment it, just in hockey in general, uh, I think is changing, right? That, that we're able to ask for help or able to, you know, want to get somebody's opinion or get a, get explanations to questions that we might have. I think that's more of expected from uh, from leadership now in hockey. But the key is here, what I tell my players all the time is the accountability aspect of being part of the solution, right? If you ask for help or if you want something and you hear the you hear something, you have to now put that into action and go to work on it. And I think that's where you're saying is like where you start losing that trust. Then you I mean if you want to if you want to fix something, I'll help you fix it, but you got to put in the work to do it. So I think as a player, there's need to be accountability there to actually do the work. I think you, you hit the nail on the head by saying you got to put in the work. I mean, this isn't easy. You know, if this was a, an easy path for, for anyone, whether it's playing junior A or major junior, uh, you know, a lot of people would do it and a lot of people get turned away. Right. So, I mean, I, I think, look, again, it's, it's fine to, to stumble. It's fine to, to have a part of your game that isn't necessarily what it needs to be. And, and that's the job of the coaching staff to work with you and, and help develop your game. But when you identify something and you ask for help, you know, when you're the first guy off the ice at the end of practice, instead of putting in that extra 20 minutes when you can, that stuff gets noticed, you know? And, and so trust me, those conversations happen every day of the week saying, yeah, you know what, the kid isn't very good in the face-off circle, but I'm going to tell you right now, he's working hard at it. He's on the ice 20 minutes after practice with my assistant, you know, doing nothing but but draws. 
uh, it's coming. He's bumped five percent in the last month. Like those conversations happen all the time, and and so you, people get. I, I always think if you work hard, the results come, right? Like at the end of the day, the hard work equals results eventually. Just because something doesn't work today, uh, you know, we always want things to get fixed overnight, but you got to start that process, right? And and so uh, I, I think for me. If you see the work ethics there and the communication lines are there, I'm good with it. You know, it's when the communication's there, but the work ethic falls down that you kind of get frustrated and, and just say, okay, well, this isn't what he wants. Then. That's okay. Yeah. No, and, and it's, um, when you do put in the work, it's funny because I was a guy and I always tell a little personal story here for whatever reason, it, I didn't want people to know my stuff, right? Like I didn't want to be the guy doing push-ups in front of the coach's office or I didn't mind going on the ice late. I love being on the ice, right? And that was when I actually had my most fun was like after practice or before practice yeah. was working on stuff. But when it came to like that, maybe that extra mile stuff that people would see, I, I would do the stuff, but it wouldn't be in front of anybody. And and that hurt me. I know it did because people, when people don't see it, they don't know, right? And uh and that's the thing is like being comfortable at the rink for players and being comfortable in that environment. Like not only does it help you, like, so there is the results that you're talking about, but the people that are watching you because you want to see success and you want to see guys get rewarded, you actually maybe sometimes even see things that aren't even there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, if you sure. see a guy working on face-offs for 20 minutes for, for two weeks, you're going to notice every time he wins a draw now more than when yeah. he loses one, you know? So it's like even that in itself benefits you because people want to tell a good story. They want to get behind you. They want you to succeed. So like all that stuff matters. And it's kind of, that's the interesting stuff. I like having these conversations because people don't generally think about it that way. Right. But there's way more involved than just doing the work too. Like one, it makes you better, makes you a better player. The people around you get excited about you because they want to see you succeed. And then they actually notice sometimes things that aren't even there, which helps you too. So, I mean, there's like a no lose situation to put in the work. I mean, that's for sure. You know what? And I mean, most people at this level love the game and they want to be around it. They're willing to help you, uh, you know, so put in the work, have fun with it. I think at some point, if, if the, the work isn't fun to you anymore, then it's probably, you know, a realization that maybe this is the path you want to go down. And, and I always say that's fine. I mean, you know, a little further back, but back to my major midget days when I was working with 15, 16, 17 year olds, you know, there'd be times where 15 year olds would come to me and say like, I don't know if I want this. You know, and, it's, and that's cool. Like, you don't have to do this. Go play baseball. Go be with your friend. You know, like, this, you're, you're, you're a young man. And I've seen that even progress now where some players that I had as, as young midget players, you know, come to the crossroads of their career at 19 or 20 in junior hockey and, and then realize that maybe this isn't what I want to do. And I reassure them that that's okay, too. You've got uh, plenty, of, plenty of runway in front of you as, as, a, as a man. And, and uh you know, take what you've learned from the game and, and bring it to other parts and you'll have great success. Because, yeah. you know, again, I, I think most of the people we work with are all really good people. So you'll find success in whatever you want to do if hockey isn't it. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, one thing I do say, I mean, if somebody comes to me with that question, usually I'll try and spend some time on it because there are some things that are hard, but it's like, what is what really aren't you enjoying about this and what do you love about it? Because... You know, like you say, the runway for life is long, but the runway for hockey really isn't, you know? So, like, that's the thing, too, is, like, if you if, if you think, if you're questioning it at all, like, really, I, I really encourage guys to align really what they want. You know I mean? Maybe the situation that they're in right now isn't that comfortable, you know, but 
Yeah, I mean, I, I encourage guys. You can you can play hockey for only a certain amount of time, and you can uh, you can do a lot of other things for the rest of your life. So, I mean, as far as that's concerned, it's nice to try and get what you can out of the game for sure. I, I feel really fortunate in Port Alberni this year. We were able to to bring in a twenty year old who had spent four years in the Quebec League. Uh, he was a, a kid from Newfoundland named Matthew Grouchy, and uh, he just wasn't having fun anymore back east you know he was a, a 20 year old he was on a team that was really struggling uh had been on some pretty successful teams and and just was not having fun anymore and our assistant coach knew him well and put a call into him and said look if you if you want to come out to, to Port Alberni and finish your junior career we'd love to have you and, and he came and, and you know what I'm really thankful that we had him for the short time that we did he basically joined our club at Christmas time but um, outside of being a you know a point per game player for us, which never hurts when you can have those guys at Christmas time, um, just for our guys to be able to see his work ethic and his passion for the game, and uh, I, I take some pride in the fact that I think we were able to sort of reignite his fire a little bit. Like he came out here with an open mind, and and you know I, I joked with him the first time we toured the Port Alberni multiplex, like. Uh, he had spent some time with the Quebec Remparts playing in that their new rink, the Sanford Videotron, which was built for basically to get the Nordiques back, right? And so he's going from a, an 18,000 seat rink <laughs> in the Quebec League to uh, the 1,800 seat Port Alberni Multiplex. And uh, and he said, I don't care. I'm here to have fun and we're going to win and let's do this. And, and it was so refreshing just to see a smile back on his face. And and so, you know, it was it was really cool. But our players learned a lot from having him. But it's funny, sometimes just a, a change of scenery uh, can reignite some fire too. Right? Yeah, 100%. And sometimes actually, it's my, yeah. yeah, you. we had that with my last guest, David Oliver, um, you know, current assistant coach of the New York Rangers. So we were going through his career and, and he, he played for the Rangers at a time when Gretzky was there and Messi was there. And it, it, like the first three years of his NHL career were kind of crazy and he ended up you know, being offered a one-way contract in the NHL, but wasn't having any fun because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't playing. He, he was healthy scratch. He was in bottom of the lineup. And one of his old buddies from uh, Michigan State called him and said, hey, uh, let's go play in Houston together in the IHL, right? Dave Tippett was the coach. He's like, you need to have some fun again. And he's like, you know what? I do. And so he took a pay cut. He went to the AHL, IHL, scored 40 goals. And, you know, and two years later, he's back up in the in the show again, right? But he said that was a big decision for him because he wasn't, he wasn't liking the game anymore, right? Yeah. So... When it gets to that, yeah, sometimes a uh, yeah, a change of pace, change of mindset, change of coat. I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen there, yeah. but it's, uh, I just encourage you guys not to give up too quick either, because there's going to be bumps in the road, right? And it goes, everyone goes through them. Um, let's talk maybe a little bit about. So you were you were with the Rockets, major major program. I'm sure we could spend like yeah. tons of time there if we wanted to, because that's a big deal too. A lot of guys are having a decision between you know major midget and academies and and all this kind of stuff. But maybe let's just talk a little bit about what your role was there with the Rockets as far as GM. Like what 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 did that mean for a major midget team, the Okanagan Rockets, which was kind of developed, wasn't it, as a feeder system a little bit for for the Rockets? Is is what what they were trying to do there? Yeah, so, so I mean, the BC Major Midget League was created essentially to let midget kids stay home, right? So they were regional teams. Uh, our, our draw zone in the Okanagan was essentially from uh, Osoyoos to Enderby, basically, was, was the players we were able to, uh, to pull from. And, and uh, there was... Which is about what? I mean, just for everyone listening, that's about maybe 300 kilometers? Ish, yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. About, you know, maybe a 300 kilometer radius from Kelowna. And so all of our games were played out of the Capital News Center in, in the mission. And, uh, you know, it was a, a neat little rink. But, you know, the program had had some success. As, as a matter of fact, my first year running the team was the only time in team history they ever missed the playoffs. Uh, so that was sort of a, 
uh, an interesting welcome to it. But, you know, for me, really, what I realized was, okay, this is something I want to do. Um, I don't have a lot of people that I'm answering to. I can pretty much run this program with, with all the autonomy I want. Uh, and so honestly, I, I just tried, Jason, to, to model it as a mini Kelowna Rockets. And, and Bruce Hamilton was a huge resource for me and help at that point. And, and that's really, I think, when Bruce and I became closer and closer was when I took over that, that Rockets program. And I think he saw the work that I was putting in. We built a dressing room, which no program had had at that time. And, um, you know, tried to really build a, a home for our players at the Capital News Center. For those who aren't familiar with that building, if you're not in the Okanagan, I mean, it's got a great gym upstairs. It's a twin sheet facility. There's a running track. There's the indoor fields. And so it really gave us the opportunity to build a program, you know, almost like a little mini junior team. And so our guys would come in after school and they would get a workout in. We'd be on the ice. And um, it, it was really fun for me because, like I said, I didn't have a lot of checks and balances. Nobody was second guessing my decisions. And, and I quite frankly felt I had a great model in, in Bruce Hamilton and Lauren Fry to, to bounce things off of and, and just try and build something. And so right. it was, it was really built. Like we went from missing the playoffs to losing in the first round to losing in the league final to finally in 2013, 14, winning the whole thing and uh, advancing on to the Pacific regionals where we played the, the Red Deer Optimist Chiefs. And anybody who follows midget hockey knows that they're quite a juggernaut. They were the two time defending national champs at the time. And uh, we had to go in and play a, a best of three series in Red Deer uh, and to this day, it's one of the coolest environments I've ever been a part of. The, the old Red Deer Memorial Arena downtown was packed, uh, 2,000 plus people all banging pots and pans and you had grown men wearing Indian headdresses on with war paint on, yelling at our kids and, uh, you know, from a, a little team in the Okanagan uh, to go into that environment was, uh, was, was definitely something. And uh, so we ended up winning game three of that series in overtime and, and to this day, I, I can still picture the nothing but silence in the arena and the cheering and hooting and hollering from our guys as we realized we were going to go to a national championship. So that was, uh, that was definitely really cool. Oh yeah. What an amazing thing to be a part of. It's hard winning, right? It's really hard winning. Even getting there's one thing and it's harder to do it. So I mean, congratulations to you and all those kids. That's something I'll never forget for sure. Um, how first of all you're right i mean that capital news center is amazing like that's a what a great facility to play out of anyone who gets to play there is blessed um but how did you get that role again so now here you are now you're gm of this major midget rockets program like how did how did dave michaud throw his hat in the ring for that and, and how are you able to get selected for that yeah so it was sort of by uh, a little fluke and a little default to be honest jason so mishko anteson was the head coach of the team at the time and Mishko's a, a longtime Okanagan minor hockey coach and had a wonderful pro career in Switzerland for a lot of years. And uh, so I, I, you know, asked a friend, I'm like, hey, do you know who this Mishko guy is? And he said, yeah, I know. I'd like to help out with that program. And, you know, can you maybe put me in touch with him? And uh, we met for lunch one day and he said, well, you know, how would you like to be my team manager? And I said, well, you know, Mishko, like, to me, a team manager in minor hockey is, you know, selling 50-50 tickets and booking meals. And, like, like I kind of – I want to be involved on the hockey side. And he said, done, no problem. You can, you know, let's let's do this together. And, and then I guess maybe his fate would have it two months into that season, he took a pro job in Switzerland. 
uh, and and left me uh, all on my own with Brandon West, who was uh, a longtime BCHL coach in West Cologne and Salmon Arm and Surrey. And uh, but anyway, Brandon and I were left to to try and figure it out, and we didn't do a lot of figuring out that first year. But uh, thankfully, I got better and better as time wore on. So really, as I took over that program and I started making more decisions, it was always a coach-run league, and I was sort of adamant that you know these programs need somebody at the top of the pyramid who you know, maybe understands hockey, but also can understand fundraising and dealing with the parents. And coaches want to coach. Coaches want to work on power plays and, and, and figure out how to win hockey games. And somebody else has to kind of take the load off. So working with BC Hockey with Barry Petrachenko, the, you know, the president of BC Hockey, we were able to, to create a new role, essentially, where major midget teams would have a, a true general manager that would oversee the, the business of the teams as well as the on-ice performance and deal with the coaching staffs and things like that. So it really uh, uh, felt like a little bit of a, maybe a pioneer helping, uh, helping get that program started. And it's, it's exploded now. I mean, the BC Major Midget League has had GMs since I've been gone and, and that thing's kept on rolling. So it's uh, something, certainly a, a proud part of my life. But again, I, I just kind of go back to, you know, these guys basically gave me a key to a team and, and didn't ask any questions. So I sort of took the ball and ran with it, I guess. Yeah, well, good for you to put yourself in that situation and to make the phone call to, to begin with, right? And I mean, obviously, yeah. like seeing, seeing now, like your arc within hockey, now the owner and president of a BCJHL team. I mean, I, I don't think probably without that stop there being GM of that team for those five years, you probably wouldn't feel that you could or would, or you wouldn't know what you're getting into. Right. So that was part no. of your history there, right? Yeah. There's, there's no question that without, uh, without the BC major midget league, there's no chance I'd be where I am today because I mean, really like, like anything else in hockey, it all boils down to networking and, and who, you know, and who you get to trust and things like that. And so, uh, not only did I have my relationship with the Rockets, obviously, but, you know, created some really close relationships with, uh, you know, a guy like Barkley Parnetta, who was in, in Tri-City, and uh, Matt Bardsley, who was in Portland at the time, now he's in, in Kamloops. Like, you just, you know, you, when you're at the rink, you see guys and you talk about players and you start to get a sense of, of what teams are looking for. And uh, there's just lots of back and forth and lots of relationships get built that way. So yeah. as, as I, I went further and further in it, I felt more and more comfortable that, okay, I, I can swim in the same waters as these guys. Like I'm not out of my league. And I think sometimes as a guy who didn't play the game at a high level, you, you sometimes have a little bit of an inferiority complex. Like, do, you know, do I belong in the same room as some of these guys? Right. And, and, you know, I think you learn as you go along when you do things the right way and you're willing to listen and learn and, and, you know, study uh, what other guys do. Uh, maybe you do belong. Yeah. Good for you. Ask questions, right? Be curious, be a learner and, and, and you can go a long way with that. And actually I owe you. I mean, that's, that's why we're talking today probably, <laughs> yeah. right. Is, is, um, you know, when Dave was there, I can't remember all the back and forth. I think there was one of the families that was up here when it was planned for you, their son was planned and they suggested that maybe you guys could use some help. That was when the coach left yeah. and there was a little bit of turmoil yeah. there and they asked if I could come out and you, you 100% agreed and, and wed me in with open arms. And I came out there for probably half a season, I think, yeah. uh, driving out there. And that was my really first dipping my toe back in the water um, and being a part of the game from that aspect, right. As kind of a mentor, you know, I mean, I wasn't running drills or anything. I was just helping guys. If I yeah. saw a turn or whatever, I would talk to them and, and uh, for me, I, I, which I, again, I got to thank you for, I, I started to realize, you know what, I like this. I mean, right. and I think I'm good at it. 
and uh, and the relatability it really helps, you know, like to be able to have a guy on the ice that they know has kind of been through it and and can talk to them. And so yeah, so that was I, I that was my first kind of di- dipping my toe in as far as from the to- coaching st- standpoint. Now here I am doing what I'm doing. So I mean, it 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 all kind of comes yeah. together. It's great. Oh, always pr- always proud to say I got a team photo with Jason Benoit and Yeah, it's hanging somewhere, but. And I guess that's a good part about being in the Okanagan for people who aren't familiar with the Okanagan landscape. I mean, there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of former, uh, you know, high level NHL retired players. I mean, we had Wade Redden come out to practices and work with our defense corps for a season. Like, you know, you're just spoiled by the, the riches of, of the knowledge in that area. So, um, you know, now that I'm on Vancouver Island, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely get a little homesick sometimes about the Okanagan, uh, particularly when it's a 35 degree summer day outside. But, I know, uh, I hear you. That's why you uh, mentioned you know, Wade. I, I just, we just ran into each other in Subway and Enderby there. And uh, <laughs> Wade was a gold medal teammate of mine for uh, Team Canada. Right. So we, we played junior hockey yeah. all the way through and it was great to see him every time. And he's, yeah. I talked to him about coming on the show. So actually it just reminds me, I got to give him a call and, and, uh, and, and get him lined up here. Great, well, Wade's a great and, guy. This is a great yeah, guy. Jeff, you know, Jeff Finley was another guy who was a, a huge help. And, uh, you know, his son has become quite the player here as well. And so, yeah, yeah there's definitely, uh, if you're a, a hockey player in the Okanagan, there's no shortage of resources that we're yeah. close at hand. For. 100%. So just a quick note here before we get started that David's microphone for this interview was not cooperating 100% and we never know that until after the conversation is over. So we were able to minimize some of the inadequacies in post-production, which is great. I just want you to be aware that, uh, you know, when we are doing these interviews over over zoom or over another technology that it's tough to get perfect all the time so although we want to maintain a high standard here on this show and that's definitely something that we that i that i'm serious about uh i did feel that this conversation was worthwhile uploading and and presenting to you guys because there's a lot of value in in what david had has to say and what we discussed so just a heads up the audio is not 100 percent perfect but i think you can uh, bear with it and enjoy the conversation thank you So what was your, um, as far as like, what were your big takeaways that you would think from your time with the Rockets that you now are using um, in your current role? Was there any lessons learned there or takeaways that you incorporated? Yeah, I mean, again, I I think it all sort of boils down to, to, I learned what sort of culture I wanted my team to have and what sort of standards I wanted to hold them to. And, you know, it's funny, like my my whole process with the Bulldogs, like we, we took over the team late last summer. Uh, and it was sort of a, a late move bringing in our new head coach and GM. And, and I kind of felt like we were sort of identityless this year. Like we just didn't have um, the structure that I, I think I'm used to having. And it's one thing that when the season ended, um, you know, we talked about as, as a staff saying, like, we need to create our identity here and get back to, you know, what, what is a bulldog? What do we want in a player? And, and maybe there's a good hockey player that just doesn't check enough of our boxes. And it doesn't mean they're not a good player or a good kid, but it's not who we're after. And so maybe we have to, you know, be a little more discretionary this year and take a pass on a player who might not fit, right? And so um, I, I no question learn that in the Rockets. I mean, uh, um, you know, there's, there's also, it's funny, the things you learn. So, like, literally the first thing I, I really ever did in hockey where I got a paycheck for was uh, – 
I spent one season scouting with the Portland Winterhawks under Mike Johnson and, and uh, learned so much from that man. I mean, obviously he went on to Pittsburgh and had a couple seasons there with the Penguins before going back to Portland. But uh, Mike has this, this player ranking system that he uses to build his teams. And uh, he has a formula that you assign a value to players and, and give them roles. And, and once you add them all up, if you hit a certain number, you're a playoff caliber team. And then if you hit a number above that, you're probably a championship contender. I mean, things got to happen and you still got to win the game. But on paper, if you add everything up and it equals this, you got a chance. And and so that's something I, I took away from Mike and I've always used with my teams and, and uh, it's very rarely wrong. So uh, it's it's uh, it's something that I just think you, you, you try and build an identity on who you are and what kind of program you want to have and then try and find the pieces that fit into that. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, an, an interesting piece of your career after the Rockets, uh, you got involved with CAA sp- uh, sports with JP Barry and Pat Brisson. And now wow. JP, there's another connection. He was actually my agent after, uh, Mike Barnett got out of IMG, uh, because of his, uh, you know, his GM and what he was doing there with, with Phoenix. He, he wasn't allowed yeah. to, I don't forget what that, what the right term for that is, but he couldn't do both. He couldn't wear both hats. Right. right? So, um, a lot of his clients went over to JP and I, I was one of them. And so what did you, how did you get involved there now after, uh, you know, now you've been a color guy, now you've been the GM of a major <laughs> team, and now you're with a sports agency. So how, how do we end up with yeah. them? Well, so that was actually concurrent with my, you might, you might find this hard to believe, but there's not a lot of money in midget hockey, Jason. It wasn't exactly a, a paying the bills kind of role, but, uh, uh, I definitely ate a few chicken wings on the parents' expense over my time in the in the BC Major Midget League. But so while I was running the Okanagan Rockets, again, it's it's your reputation and who you know. And and uh, uh, at the time, I was I was just given the role of assistant director of operations for Team Pacific, which competes in the uh, uh, the World U17 Junior A uh, Challenge. And we were off to Windsor that year, and it was the 95 age group and, you know, where you're, you're neck of the woods, you'd be very familiar with Curtis Lazar. Uh, you know, Curtis was sort of headlining that team with, uh, I mean, boy, like that was a heck of a roster. Like we had Curtis Lazar, Sam Reinhardt, Nick Patan, uh, you know, our two goaltenders were Eric Comrie and Tristan Jari, uh, you know, half, half that team's playing in the NHL now. And, and so JP had a few clients that were on that team and, so we just met at the Capitol News Center one day, and, and JP was uh, was a you know uh, obviously a guy that I was very familiar with, and um, you know forged a little bit of a friendship, and we ended up having a few a few lunch dates, and uh, you know I had an opportunity. Uh, uh, I'll never forget the JP and I had sort of become close, and we started talking about hey you know maybe there's this role with CAA that might be a good fit for you, and you know it's it's funny how you, your career takes different stages. Like I was still selling radio while running the Oakland and I just dreamed of a life where I could just focus on hockey right and that was my 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 goal was how do I not have to go work somewhere else one day like how can I just get a paycheck in the game of hockey and and uh you know I kept sort of sharing that dream with JP and and one day he called and said I think maybe we got a fit here for you and uh so I had the chance to go work with CAA and, and, uh, but I, I remember So his son, Brennan was 15 at the time and tried out for the Okanagan Rockets and I cut him. And I, and I thought, 
oh boy, like this, this could be that here. I'm going to find out real quick if the only reason JP was hanging out with me is because he wanted his kid to play on my team. Uh, fortunately, it didn't, it didn't change anything. And, and Brendan actually uh, played with us at 16 and was our, our goalie as we went to the national championships. So it, uh, it, all, it all worked out in the end. But I, I remember thinking, I got to pick up the phone and tell JP I'm going to cut his kid here and see how this goes. How did it go? It went well. He understood. He, he knew where we were at. So it's, uh, right. you know, it's, it's good. But I, I always joke, you know, I mean, I think of uh, JP Berry as one of the smartest hockey guys I've ever had the opportunity to, to spend time with. And uh, he, he definitely had a few hockey dad moments with me during his uh, his son's time with us. So it just shows every, everyone's vulnerable to it. But Yeah, 100%, right? Isn't that interesting? What, what was your role there with CAA when you, when you came on? Yeah, so primarily, uh, so I worked out of Kelowna with JP, but traveled a lot to their, the head office for CAA Sports is in, in LA. And, uh, you know, it's quite a scene. It's a, a beautiful building on a street called Avenue of the Stars. And, uh, you know, CAA, for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, it's, it's way more than just a sports agency. I mean, if you've ever watched a movie, it's got CAA written all over it. If you've ever listened to a song on the radio, it's got CAA written all over it. It's, uh, uh, a pretty a pretty big juggernaut of a of a talent agency and they got into the sports game you know uh sort of later in the in their development but uh best of the best you know i mean uh, ca represented the you know it still does but you know crosby and melkin and kane and Taze and drew and the Sedins. i mean the list goes longo the list goes on and on about the the players that they they work with and and so i was real fortunate my job really with them was to you know work with jp's younger guys in the west and and another great agent who's based out of uh, calgary named mark mckay uh, you know he and i would sort of coordinate and, and uh, work with our young guys so i'd spend a lot of time driving to junior rinks and talking with our players after games and making sure that uh, they were okay in their situations and everything was good and then i'd hop back in the car and drive back to Kelowna, and and uh, it was it was great but you know, get a chance to work with the young, uh, you know, Matthew Barzell and Dante Fabro and Tyson Jones. I mean, I was spoiled with Tyson because I had him from midget through to my time in Penticton through to, you know, so, uh, but, but you know, real special to, to go to the NHL draft and see these young guys realize their dreams and see the moments with the families and, um, you know, have, have that opportunity to sort of see behind the curtain on a lot of that stuff was, was real special. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it was a five year almost stretch in my, in my life but professionally that I'm, I'm very proud of. And it taught me a ton. Uh, mostly it taught me that I wanted to be on the team side. I didn't want to be in, in the agency world and, you know, credit to Pat and JP, they were both relentless in their desire to, to help me find a team that was going to be a good fit for me. And, uh, you know, sometimes things are fit and sometimes they aren't, but, uh, you know, for me, I knew I, I, I love trophies. I want to, I wanted to win trophies and, uh, not a lot of trophies, uh, in the agency life, right. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a tough business. So, uh, very grateful for my time there, but, uh, you know, Saturday night hockey night in Canada holds a, a special place for me now when you can sit down and, you know, watch a game and see some of the guys that you were able to spend some time with as 16, 17 year olds and see them doing their thing in the NHL now. It definitely holds a, a special place for you. Great. So, so were they then a part of you getting into the Penticton V's organization? Um, yeah, is, big time. Uh, yeah, big time. So, so I mean, part and parcel. So Fred Harbinson is a long time head coach and GM and, and president of the Penticton V's. Uh, you know, we had built a relationship during my time with the, the Okanagan Rockets where we were sending some players to Penticton and, 
uh, you know, again, it goes back to trust. He knew that we would do a good job. And so if there were some players that felt uh, needed a little bit more time, he would recommend our program to those guys. And, and so we had some back and forth and, and, uh, you know, Brendan Barry was going to Penticton. Tyson Jost was going to Penticton. Uh, Liam Finley who was a player of mine who was just finishing up his career at the University of Denver. Was a, a player headed to Penticton, and so Fred and I were just talking more and more. And uh, you know, we found a role that was going to be a fit for me in Penticton. And uh, JP was certainly a part of, of you know not only giving his blessing to Fred to, to go down that road, but uh, you know, just a, a great mentor for me to sit down and talk about the pros and cons of, of a decision like this because it was. It's a big one. I mean, to, to leave the, the biggest sports agency on the planet, uh, where quite frankly, if you just keep trucking along, you're probably on a pretty good path to, to you know, continued success. Uh, to go to a BCHL team, uh, you know, despite the fact that the Penticton Bees are, are, you know, about as big of a junior A program as it gets. Uh, but I felt very fortunate that I was able to do all this while staying in the Okanagan. I, I lived in West Kelowna. I lived in West Kelowna when I worked for J.P. Berry. I lived in West Kelowna when I worked for the Bees for a long time before finally moving to Penticton. But uh, uh, to be able to, to stay close to home and, and be a part of some real special programs was, was just awesome for me. No, great. And what was your role there with Penticton? So it kind of morphed and it, it, so it started as director of player development and corporate sales. And so the corporate sales part kind of came in when Fred and I were talking. Uh, I said, well, what sort of salary did you have in mind? And he threw out a number and I said, I, I can't do that. Like, I, I can't live off that. And so as I go back, you know, it's funny how things all tie together. I had a good career in radio sales and certainly felt comfortable being a part of, of, uh, of, of a sales program. And so I said, well, who's doing our corporate sales in Penticton? And it would so we said, oh, it's a good idea. We could probably use some help on that. And so that was able how to sort of tie it together where uh, I sort of, I always joke, I, I, I sold rink boards to support my hockey habit, right? So uh, it, it was real fun to be a part of the recruiting program. And, and you know, when you visit with families and, and try and convince them that and victims the spot to, to develop their son. And, and uh you know, so that was great. But as my as my role sort of continued in Penticton, we ended up getting nominated to host, or we won the bid to host the, the Western Canada Cup, which uh, was sort of a, a step before the RBC Cup, which has now gone back to being called the Centennial Cup. It's the National Junior A Championship, and so uh, it was about a you know a near million dollar budget for a ten day tournament, and and so I really had to pay attention to that and make sure we were bringing in more corporate dollars and selling tickets for it. So the hockey role for that year, it just didn't make sense to continue. So I really took on more of a business focus that year, um, became an alternate governor with the Bs and started going to BCHL board meetings and, and sort of started to learn the ropes about how the, the political and the business side of, of running a, a hockey team works. And, you know, I fought it at first. I, I wasn't very happy about it. You know, I, I wanted to be a hockey guy. That was, that was really where my brain was at. Um, but again, J.P. Barry turned to be a, a tremendous resource and said to me, look, you're never going to forget what a, a good hockey player looks like. Like, put your time in on the business side, learn the ropes. It's going to be invaluable for you at some point. And, and little did I know, just a couple of years later, I'd have a chance to own a team myself. And I can tell you with a certain education, if, if I didn't go through those, you know, that, that, that struggle internally, I would not be ready to run the Alberni Valley Bulldogs the way I feel I'm, I'm capable to do so now. So. Yeah, great. You got both sides of it covered, right? And yeah. the, the more, yeah, the more breadth of knowledge you have in that role, the better off you can serve your team. So good for you. Um, how was the recruitment process? I think that's, uh, 
that's an interesting thing just to touch on, you know, as far as, as far as that, because, you know, the, some guys don't get many offers, right? So it's an easier decision. Some guys get lots of offers and it makes it a harder decision. You know, how do you, how do you, how did you go about approaching uh, parents? I know with Penticton, you, you touched on it already, like Penticton is not a hard place to promote and not a hard place to endorse. Um, it is one of the, one of the premier teams in the BCJ, if not the premier team, along with a couple others. So, I mean, that, that aspect of it might've been a little easier than, than some, but like, what is, how did, how did you handle that? Walking into living rooms or picking up the phone and, and letting guys know that, Hey, you got to trust your son with us. We're going to, we're going to take care of him. Sure. So yeah, it's, it's funny. I always say like, I love working for CAA cause you're really looking for first round picks and, and you know, uh, if you sit down with a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old and say, uh, we represent Sidney Crosby and Nathan McKinnon, and they're not impressed, then you're probably in the wrong business, right? And so a lot of, a lot of it was uh, was the same with, with Penticton. I mean, you, you see the history the Vs have and the, the, the track record of success that, you know, and then you show off that anyone hasn't seen it, just Google the South Okanagan Event Center. It's probably the premier junior A facility in all of Canada and it's not North America. I mean, it's a really special arena uh, and Penticton supports the these like very few cities support a junior a hockey team i mean they get three thousand plus a night and so i'm real proud of my time there but but uh yeah i mean i, I think again it, it, it kind of goes back to trust you you know like to, to me the whole thing with with recruiting a player it's a big decision for a family on on who are we going to trust and, and i always say in my mind there's there's really there's three factors that family's looking for when they're trying to decide where their son's going to play you know, the first off, is my son going to be safe? Is he in a good spot and a good environment? You know, most places you can check that box and say, yeah, but, you know, secondly, is my son going to get better? You know, is the coaching staff in a position to help him develop and, and become a better player, a better human being? And then finally, to me, the third one is, is my son going to have a chance to move on? You know, and, and so those are the sort of the three principles that I always sort of focus on with a family. Um, you know, I think we're really lucky in, in Port Alberni. Like we've got, I think some of the best billets you've ever seen. We've got a longtime billet coordinator who's, uh, who does a great job for us and placing these guys in homes that make sense. We've got an unbelievable educational advisor named Tom McAvey, who's a retired uh, school principal, high school principal in Port Alberni. And he is passionate beyond belief about making sure these guys are academically eligible and on the right path when it comes to that. And, you know, I love our coaching staff. I think Joe Martin and Brandon Shaw do a great job and, and they have connections to move these guys on. So, you know, when I sit down with a family and say, here's, here's what our program can offer. I think we check a lot of boxes, right. But really it becomes about a relationship and, you know, not naming names, but we're talking to a player right now who there's quite frankly, a lot of teams all over North America that are on right now. And we're fairly confident he's going to become a bulldog. And, and I kind of jokingly said to our coach, like, okay, so Joe, like help me, fill in the blank like why is he picking us <laughs> and and joe said it's trust like the family trusts us i talked to the mom for hours and you know there's there's teams out there that are throwing things at him and, and he's just not interested the mom really believes in our program and so i think i think at the end of the day when you sit down as a as a family and you start thinking about you know are we going to go here are we going to go there like you know often your gut choice is the right choice you know and and you believe in what they're saying. Like I always say, it's, it's really easy this time of year, Jason, to tell a player, oh, we envision you, you're going to be a top six player. You're going to play on the power play. And you're, well, I mean, that's a lot of smoke and mirrors in, in the summer, right? It, it really, 
I don't know how a coach can look an eye, you know, player in the eye this time of year and tell them that I'll never do it. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm honest and I expect my staff to be honest. Saying, All that's up to you. You know, we're going to provide you a great environment, a good home, a great rank, good teammates, good staff. The rest is up to you. Once the puck drops, where you're going to play in the lineup is entirely up to you. And, and I think, uh, I think families appreciate that, you know, the ability to, to understand the difference between, you know, smoke and mirrors and, and a good, honest conversation. So that's what I pride ourselves on. And, and I think that's what leads to success is just honest recruiting. Um, I hate when I hear teams over recruit. And when I say over recruit, I mean, they're promising the star and moons to, you know, to a whole bunch of players. And then when they get to training camp, actually, they're not a fit. We're going to move them to, to another team. And, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to hear those stories sometimes. So I just think when you come to something from a, an honest place, uh, you're always going to win. Yeah, no, good for you. And that, uh, I mean, boy, a lot of stuff was running through my mind there as you were, as you were speaking, because uh, the integrity of the program really, I think, stems from what you're talking about. And, and you know, you can... <laughs> You can do the dance a few times, but if you if if you if you leave solo and these guys go home by themselves, you know, using the dance uh, metaphor, right? Like yeah. it catches up with you, right? And, and you stop being sure. believable. And um, you know, and I think that's a really important thing because it is tough to have integrity and it is tough to be accountable. And and when you when you shift that accountability over to the player to say, hey, man, we're going to give you these things, and it's up to you to make the difference. I think that started started that culture that you're talking about, right? I really do think that that's that that's a great spot to start with. But to me, it brought up one of the questions which a lot of guys ask me, and I don't know if there is a a, a one way answer for this. But I mean, you've been in the major midget developmental process. You're now you're an, a, a junior A owner, and there's a lot of 16, 17 year old kids there, and the parents are trying to figure out. Should I be should I be in major midget where I pretty much think I know I'm going to be a top six or be on the power play, or should I try and graduate to junior A and and potentially be a bottom six forward and maybe not get much ice time and and uh, you know people battle with that. What what, what is your what is your take on that? Do, do you think that they should be at the best level they should be at, or do you think that they should be down playing more playing more hockey in maybe more critical situations? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a great question and it's one that certainly gets faced the, you know, all the time to us. And my answer often isn't a popular one to moms, dads, and kids. It's that you should stay behind, you know, really. Um, I've never seen anything bad come of a player having the ability to, to dominate or be a counted on player uh, at one level before moving on to the next. And, you know, I look back at that, Okanagan Rocket team we had in 2013-14 in that went to the national championship. Um, we had 11, 17-year-olds that year. And there probably wasn't one of them that didn't have the chance to go on to play either Junior B or Junior A that year. Um, and we sort of sold them on the fact that stick with us, let's do this. We lost in the league final the year before. Let's, let's build a team that has a chance. And it didn't hurt. We had a 15-year-old named Tyson Jost who broke a bunch of league records. We knew he was coming to us. And so that built some excitement. But, but really, the, the lesson learned from that was 18 of those 20 players moved on to play junior A or major junior and have successful careers. Um, and so to me, I, I look at that, like the foundation that was built by coming back and playing that extra year of midget, you know. And, and uh, you know, I, I look at a guy like Troy Stetcher who was in Penticton, you know, um, played right through, you know, before going to the University of North Dakota and then spent his time at the University of North Dakota and, and you know, resisted the urge to, to turn pro. Uh, Dante Fabro is a player we had in, in, in Penticton who went on to uh, 
University of Boston and, you know, had a couple of contracts dangled in front of him by Nashville, but uh, the timing wasn't right for him and the family. They felt that, you know, where the Preds were, it just, it wasn't the best fit. So he went back to school and, and, you know, honed his craft. And I just don't think any time that you spend more time getting better at what you're trying to be good at is going to be bad for you, right? At the end of the day, um, there's, there's just so many horror stories, Dave, for players who go early, get put in uncomfortable positions, become healthy scratches. And, and I always say this, like it was easy when I was in major midget because you can't trade a player, you can't cut a player. Like once we committed to you, you're our guy. So uh, sink or swim, we're going to work with you for the year. But I hate to say it, it's not that way at the junior hockey level. You can be traded, you can be dropped, you can be, uh, be, be you know, sent away. And, and so it becomes a business very fast when you get to the, to the junior A or the major junior level. So unless you're 100% confident in your ability and you're ready to go, I don't think there's anything wrong. And I know it's easy for me to say with the cost of minor hockey, whether you're at a, a sports school or playing major midgets, it's not insignificant. And I get that. Um, but if you have the ability to stay and be a leader and, and contribute and, and play power play and play pen and kill and maybe wear a letter or be the starting goalie that's going to play a ton of games, do it because, you know, it's just – so many horror stories of, sure. of players who, who get put in bad spots and then it's just, it's over. And then we go back to the, it's not fun anymore. And I don't like this and I'm not comfortable. And, you know, you just see so much promise sometimes get, uh, get, get whittled away right before your eyes. And it's not their fault. It's just, they were put in a bad spot. So. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I, some of the things that I, I like to bring up is like, where, where does the alternative, first of all, like, where are you playing? And, and is there a facility? Is there good coaches there? Sure. Right? Because yeah. to me, people get really caught up and I think overly caught up in the playing time during the games, you know, like, of course that's significant, but it's not the most important thing. I don't think when you're 16, 17, like it's a factor, but it's not the most important thing. Like how much time are you getting away from the rink? How much access do you have to ice? Who is the coaching staff that you're around? What are the players like that you're around? Right? Like there's, there's some other factors there that people got to, got to understand too. I think that are important parts because if you're, if you're somewhere where you don't have access to ice, the coaching staff is very minimal. You might be the star of your team for the games that you play, but really no one's pushing you. No one's getting you better. You're not really expanding and, and the development's kind of on your shoulders. I'm not sure if that's the best spot as playing like a nine, 10 forward in junior A and you know, maybe the next yeah. year, now you're in the program, the coaches know you, you know, you've been in the environment, you're going to feel that much more comfortable the next year and play a bigger role in that team. Like I, I do think there is times where it's like, you know what, if you can make a team, we'll make that team, you know? Um, yeah. But again, I, everyone's different and no situation is the same because, I mean, whether you're going to go to Penticton or I mean, that was a decision I made when I was 15, right? I was, I had the choice of playing at home in Vernon. Uh, Mel Liss at the time was the owner. He said I'd have a spot on that team if I came to camp. Now, 15's young to play in that league. And, uh, and I just was like, you know what? I know what they do there. Like they, they, all they want to do is win every single year. And they bring in guys in, in the second half of the year that are 20 years old all the time. And, and I just, I just kind of had a feeling that I just didn't want to be a part of that scenario. So I went to Penticton, which had a way different vibe. Like they had Paul Correa there and they were good, but it wasn't at that time they weren't the same level as Vernon, right? They were just, you know, they were just scrapping it out. They were doing their thing. Gary Davidson said, Hey, I'm going to play. I'm going to play a lot. Um, I believed him, you know, and we decided to go there. So for me, it wasn't, I mean, you have to consider the environments you're, you're able to go into, right. And what, what's the best fit for you and where do they, you know, that trust again, what, do you have that trust? And, and if you do, I mean, rock and roll, right? Yeah. And that's a great point. I mean, there, you can't discount the, um, the relationship you have with the coaching staff. And if they're honest with you that 
look, coming in here at 16, it's not going to be easy and you might not play every night, but we're committed to you. Well, then that changes that story, uh, you know, a little bit, right? It's, it's the ones where they sell you a bill of goods and you get there and then you're not playing and they're not really, you know, so uh, listen, I don't think there's a lot of bad programs out there, but there's definitely some good ones. And I think you need to, to really uh, pay attention to what's the development plan. And that's something that I, I encourage families to ask, you know, before you sign anywhere or commit to something, you know, ask the question, what's the development plan for my son? You know, and, and not, that doesn't mean, is he going to play power play? Is he going to be first line center? Is he gonna, no, what's the development plan? What's, what's practice look like? What does off ice look like? What does skills development look like? What does the culture look like? What is, what's the plan? You know, yeah. if you can get those answers and you're comfortable with it, absolutely go for it. That's a great question. Great questions to ask because like you said, there are some programs. I mean, London Knights is a great example of like guys that have 16 year olds on that team that you don't even know that they're even on the team because they're healthy scratches are not around, but they're around this juggernaut of a, of a development scenario. And then they come in at 17 years old and all of a sudden they're first round draft picks to the NHL. And there's other examples of that in the NHL level, like Detroit has been a great producer of, of their, of their prospects because they commit to developing them. Right. So there, there is programs that have a track record and I encourage parents to look at that like look at the 16 year olds that played there look at the 17s that play. are they still there at 19 do they get let go right because like the, you can do a little digging and it's not hard to find right are they a part of the solution or not right and I think that's yeah. the thing because you can be a 16 17 year old kid in that league not get all the ice time that you think you want or you might be getting somewhere else but you're learning and you're part of a development process that puts you in a position to succeed later on and uh, and I think that trust that you build within within an organization if they want to they want to, you know, develop their players instead of trying to find the next shiny gem all the time. That's part of the culture too, right? And and yeah. and there are programs that show that. So, anyways, there's no one. I don't think there's one way for, for for one player, but there is a. You can make an educated choice as a family by asking the right questions, by looking into the program, who's offering what, and make an educated decision. I mean, that's the best. That I mean, that's the only thing you can do, right? You try the best you can and do the best you can. I, I never, uh, I never begrudge a family if they choose not to be a bulldog uh, and go another route, uh, as long as they feel they're educated, right? It's, it's the question, you know, it's the, the signings where you go, oh man, like who's his advisor? Why did he do that? And, and was he educated? And at the end of the day, if I meet with a family and, and talk about all the pros and cons, and they decide against us, I can live with it as long as I know they're educated, right? So right. And that's that's something I think I took from CAA was. You know, when you when you're on the agency side or the advisor side, you don't have any allegiance to a team. You could care less what program a player goes to. I mean, for for me, you know, always so interesting to watch the development path for for Austin Matthews. You know, and the decision to go play a season in Switzerland was was really unheard of for a draft eligible player. You know, for Austin. School wasn't really in the cards, and and he belonged at that time to the Everett Silvertips, who you know were were under Kevin Constantine, and you know offensively just didn't think it was a, a fit, and and uh, you know so with CAA with the connections they had, Mark Crawford was in, in, in Switzerland at the time, and thought well maybe here's an opportunity to send Austin into a really uncharted waters, but you know paid tremendous dividends for for Austin. So I mean I, I think. Uh, I think you just need to be educated and look at your options and, and pros and cons lists are always uh, always a little cliche maybe, but uh, they don't often yeah. lie if you start adding up uh, what works for you and what doesn't. 
when um we're talking about you know, uh, recruiting players um you know what 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 gets said so some of the lies that get told and some of the promises that get made what does it mean to make a commitment in these guys that sign a commitment letter now so like i you know, i'm talking with guys and they're like oh he's committed here or, you know i've been offered a commitment letter there like what what does that mean like legally what does it mean and and what uh how how uh, how do you handle those commitment letters now in your position that you are? Like, do you have so many that you that you agree to give out, or that you know you want to give out, or can you walk us through that process? Yeah, sure. So I mean, really, uh, you know, it's my head coach and general manager Joe Martin, who obviously heads up our recruiting, and and Joe and I talk almost on a daily basis about what the plan is and who we're after and where do they slot in and things like that. I mean, for for us in junior A, we certainly take our commitments very seriously. Uh, well, I shouldn't say junior A, with the Alberta Valley Bulldogs, we take our commitments very seriously and we don't commit to a player unless we feel that when the puck drops in the fall, they're going to be a part of our, our program. And that kind of goes back to where I touched on where some teams do overcommit, where where they will say, hey, you know, we got a spot for you, come to camp, but they're saying that to a whole bunch of guys. And it's not just in the BCHL, it's right across, you know, junior hockey. Um you know, so that's where you just, you have to be careful with, with what does that commitment mean and what's the plan and, and, uh, and hope that you're, you're putting yourself in a, in a good spot. So, I mean, for, for us, when we have a player sign off on that, we're committed to that. So I, I can't speak for every program holding it to that same standard, but, um, you know, certainly for us in Port Alberni, it, it's a commitment is a commitment that you'll be with us and we'll do our best. You know, Joe Martin, his track record, Joe doesn't love making trades. You know, it's just not his thing. Like when he commits to a player, he wants to work with them and, and, you know, hopefully help them be a part of our solution. Right. So, um, unfortunately there is some ambiguity around what a commitment means in some places. Um, but that's where it goes back to, you know, do, do you get a good vibe and do you get a good sense of what you're, you're signing your son up for? Yeah, I know. That's uh, that's great advice. Good for you. What about, do you have a, your own personal philosophy uh, on the commitment letters? Like, do you want to have, I don't know, how do I put this? Like, let's say you have, you know, you're returning guys. So you're looking at your team for next year already. Obviously, yeah. you're looking yeah. at it. You know your guys are returning. You know, now you have so many guys under commitment. Do you try and leave three or four spots open so it's a competitive camp? Or do you want to have all the spots filled? Um, how, do you, how do you go about doing, doing that, architecting a team? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, it's, it varies from year to year, obviously. I mean, we're in a position with the Bulldogs this year where, you know, we could theoretically return 16 or 17 players. Like, we could bring a lot of guys back. I think there's going to be a little bit of change more than maybe we anticipated just because you start to go through the their process of meeting players and talking to schools and talking to agents and, and uh you know, you find out there's some players out there that maybe check a few more of the boxes for you about the uh, the culture and identity that you're trying to build. But, you know, really, like, and, and this is sort of a, you know, a carryover from my Penticton years where, you know, I, I like going into training camp with pretty much your team picked and, and really bringing in some younger guys to give them the taste and give them the experience of playing some exhibition games and seeing how we operate and, and, uh, and, and then really setting them back to whether it's junior B or, or midget hockey uh, with the AP, you know, promise to them that we're going to bring them up throughout the season and get some time with us and things like that. So um, I think the days for the most part in the BCHL of, uh, you know, 40 or 50 man main camps and, and 10, 15 guys are slugging it out for, you know, the final few spots. I think for the most part, 
that's really diminished. This really has become a, a recruiting heavy league in the sense where like every day right now you're seeing uh, so-and-so is committed to Chilliwack, so-and-so is committed to Penticton, and they're coming from all over. It's, it's uh, not close to home necessarily, right? Um, so I think teams primarily – much like college hockey, right? Like you, you have to, you, you almost mirror where your, your development path is. And, and for us, that's college hockey and college hockey is a recruiting league. Um, you know, and, and so more and more and more, we've become that way as well, where yeah. we're meeting with families, meeting with players, watching a ton of tape, trying to talk to as many people as we can. And then, you know, looking a player in the eye and saying, Jason, we want you to be a part of the Alberta Valley Bulldogs next season. Would you like to come? Yes, they would. Great. All right. Uh, here you go. Right. And so, so then for those players out there, yeah. sorry to cut you off, but so for those no, players no. out there right now that, that don't have people dangling commitment letters in front of them, but are getting invites to these, you know, camps, whether they be, you know, the main camp, I don't think those yeah. are going out yet, but I mean, they're, they're spring evaluation camps and this type of stuff. Like, um, they should really more have their sights set. Would that be, if I'm hearing from you on, on finding the best midget development program or junior B program that they could find at that point, because the yeah. going and surprising somebody in camp just really doesn't really happen anymore. It's, it's a fewer and farther between stories. So I, I, I think, you know, look, this year has turned into complete upheaval with what's happening, unfortunately in the world today and our inability to, Old camps right now. I mean, we should be hosting our, our spring camp next week. Um, and obviously that's going to be put on hold until Hockey Canada gives the, the all clear and, and allows us the opportunity to resume hockey activities and stuff. But uh, so this year, notwithstanding, I mean, really what I would always say to a player, you know, you're going to probably get 17 or 18 spring camp invite letters. Uh, you know, some have a little more authenticity to them than others. Some are, uh, insert first last name here and hit send on the email others are hey we spent some time watching you at the burnaby winter club this year or with the okanagan rockets and we think that uh, you know you have potential to play we'd like you to come to our camp and, and so i mean you can certainly tell which is the form letter and which maybe has a little more thought put into it um but really when you're you're thinking about it i mean first and foremost spring camps cost money you know they're uh they're an opportunity for, for us junior teams to, to make a little bit of money in the off season. There's, there's no question of that. I don't hide behind that. Um, but so you don't just want to keep handing off 250 bucks to a whole bunch of places. Like you want to put some real thought into, okay, is this a good spot for my son to go? And, and so I would always tell my players, especially in the Okanagan is, you know, maybe you go to two or three camps and that's it. Don't start running around going to five, six, seven camps. You know, pick one in the Okanagan, go to one on the lower mainland and, and maybe consider going to one team on the island and, and uh, get yourself some experience. And, and But also make sure you have a, a midget backup development plan in place as well. But, uh, you know, I mean, spring camps still, don't get me wrong, spring camps are absolutely an opportunity to impress and, and give yourself an opportunity to get a main camp invite and quite frankly, get a commitment. You know, I mean, if, if you have a really good spring camp, it's not uncommon for a team to, to invite a player to come back and play with them that season. So, right. Yeah. I was just going to say that. You've got to be a little, a little strategic in it, right? You don't just want to start right. going anywhere and everywhere. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. That's, that's really a time to make your splash if you want to go. Could be, be strategic with where you pick and, and go all in and, and maybe you turn some heads. That'd be your time to turn some heads if you're maybe in a program, coming from a program that's not as highly scouted, which, which actually gives me uh, maybe a question on that as far as scouting at your level. Um, 
I can't imagine you have a, a, a really deep set of scouts that are out there. Maybe you do. I'm not sure. Like, yeah. How many how many scouts would you say that you guys have either under contract or even just volunteering kind of? I think there's a few volunteer scouts at that level too, right? Yeah, there, there's no question. I mean, it's the same thing at the, the major junior level as well. You have some dedicated paid scouts and then you have, I think the old term is bird dogs, uh, you know, around the ranks throughout the Western Canada calling in and saying, hey, I saw a kid, maybe you guys should look at him. And so, you know, I think that philosophy really varies from, from team to team, Jason. I mean, for us in, in Port Alberni, uh, we've got a couple guys that we really know and trust and, uh, and, and really listen to their advice. But for the most part, for, for us, it's, again, it goes back to relationships. I mean, we're in constant contact with the, the prep schools, the midget teams, the colleges in the States, you know, who like, our league's really fortunate, I guess, in the sense where, you know, our phone rings an awful lot, whether it's colleges saying, hey, we got a player leaving U.S. prep school, he needs a year of junior, maybe the USHL isn't the best fit for him, do you guys think maybe you have a spot for him? And, and then so that conversation leads to, let me get back to you, uh, fire up hockey TV, and you spend a few hours watching some, some games and some clips, and uh uh, and make a decision on whether you think that, you know, young man can be a part of your, your team. And then you start having the phone calls and conversations with families. And, and uh, you know, so I, I think a lot of times the at our level, the, the scouting is almost sort of less important because of the relationship with coaches. I mean, I have, uh, you know, the ability, and certainly Joe Martin has the ability to pick up the phone and, and have a real good talk with, uh, with a lot of programs about, Hey, who, who do you have this year? Who's, who stands out as a guy who might be able to make the jump next year? And, and we get some real honest feedback. And, and so then you start to develop a plan from there saying, okay, maybe these are the, the five guys in, in midget hockey we got to watch this year and and decide on whether they can make the jump or, or be a part of our program. So I find that part interesting. We could have a, I'm sure we could talk another hour just on that <laughs> because like, you know, with anywhere, the, the, the top guys are the top guys and everyone in the world knows who they are. Right. And, and, and yeah. everyone wants them and everything else. But I think like how you build a program is to identify the guys that can maybe make a difference that not everybody's looking at. And I mean, and that's where, that's where you really show your value as a scout because it's like, yeah, these guys can contribute and also they're not getting talked to by everyone under the sun. And so now, you know, you become a really good option for them. Um, and in saying that, like, there's a lot of places to watch kids now, right? You I mean, you have the elite yeah. 15s, you got the major midget programs, you got the zone teams, you got, um, you got the academy programs. Like how, how do you, how do you deal with that from a, from a team perspective? Meaning like how, how wide of a net do you cast and, and where do you guys like to shop? I guess. Yeah, so I mean, when it comes to the, to the U S I mean, certainly you're relying on your relationships with the colleges and, and some of the key programs in the U S to, to get the feedback and, and, you know, and let's not, you know, get ourselves uh, agents and advisors play a big part in this as well. Like they shop their players and, and, uh, you know, certainly do their best to, to get their player front and center on, on some teams radars and things like that, Jason. But, uh, you know, when you cast that wide net, I mean, you know, it sounds daunting, but quite honestly, it's a pretty small pool when you really get down to it. Um, you know, there's, there's teams year in and year out that manufacture players and you, 
you know, and, and if they don't have those players, they're usually playing against those players. So they can give you a pretty honest answer. I mean, uh, I've been tight for years with the, the OHA program with Andy Oaks and Dixon Ward and, and, and Penticton. And, um, you know, those guys have been invaluable over the years as well. Just saying, Hey, what do you think of this player at the Burnaby winter club? And what do you think of this player at Delta? And, um, you know, you get some real honest feedback. And, and so once you kind of, you know, I, I think like everything in life is you, you have a tight circle of people you really trust. And if they all start saying, you know, John Smith's the player you might want to look at, then you start to think, okay, maybe John Smith's the player I want to look at. And, and then you go down that road to having right. conversations with families and players and then kind of seeing it. You know, it's kind of funny in a lot of ways, it's, it's not a lot different than dating. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, hey, you got to meet my friends. And, and, uh, you know, then you start to see whether you got anything in common and if it might be a fitter or not, right? Right. A lot of times it's not. Well, and again, there you go. I mean, when I'm talking to players, you know, and that's that's who I'm talking more directly to and then with the parents about questions about where, where should we go and everyone's worried about what program they go to um, and get really anxious about it, you know, to make sure they pick make yeah. the right choice. But at the end of the day, like you said, you're going to get found. You know, like you're going to get found. Like if you're playing anywhere that, you know, that has any type of credibility at all, I mean, like if you do a good job, you're going to get found because you know somebody who knows somebody who wants to tell a story and people want to find people too. That's the thing that people forget, right? If you can find that diamond in the rough playing Joe Blow middle of, you know, BC somewhere and, and, and that guy turns out to be a player, then somebody makes you, you, you make somebody feel good about themselves for finding that player. Like, you're going to get found, right? Like just go yeah. do it. Do, do, don't do, we get so wound up and where to go. And of course there is little, there is factories, right? There is places that you can be and that, you know, there's, there's areas that get watched, but you know, again, you are going to get there. You're going to be able to find an opportunity and, and, and people can't go too crazy uh, come fall time. If they don't make that one team or they don't get quite the right spot, you know, it's a uh, hockey's a small world and it's not, it's not that hard to find guys. No, it's not. And, and, you know, I, the other thing I always say about that as well is it's not nearly as political as people think it is. You know, I think a lot of times you hear that, oh, my son didn't get a chance because of X, Y, or Z. Um, you know, the reality is coaches are paid to win hockey games. And if they think there's a, a player out there that can help them win, uh, there's not a lot of other circumstances that go into that decision. If, uh, if they can help a coach win. And, and that's where I say, I mean, it, it becomes a business, right? I mean, at the end of the day, uh, I pay Joe Martin to, to run my program and, and he's got to do his best possible job to ultimately win hockey games. And that's, you know, let's face it, that's the measuring stick of, of most programs is whether you have success and you're moving guys on. So there's not a lot political that goes into it. If you can help a team win, you're going to have an opportunity to play. And if, if somebody feels that you can't help them win, there's a reason for it. And it's not because they don't like your shirt. Gotcha. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Which is interesting. I know you're really proud of of the coach that you found there, and and the GM to fill that role. He, he has a, a you know a, a great track record there. I believe it was in Merritt, correct? But before was, yeah. you guys, yeah. yeah, so had a, built a really good program there in Merritt. You were able to hire him. How did that process go? And was and was that your decision at the end of the day? Who who was hired? Yeah, so it's it's really a funny story, and, and Joe's well aware of it, so I'm not a, afraid to tell it, but uh, Joe, uh, I didn't know he was an option, so I was well down the road with another coach who I was really excited about, and, and one day, the you know, I got a call, and, and uh, Joe said, well, you know, my, my contract is up in merit, is there, you know, where, where are you at? And, 
I said, geez, I, I had any idea, like, <laughs> it probably would have been my first call, but I think I'm too far down the road with this guy. Like, I would feel awful at this point to, to, to call this coach that I've been talking with for weeks and uh, and tell him I'm going another direction. Like, I'm sorry to say, I just don't think the timing is going to work. And he said, ah, you know, I get it. I understand. And, and I said, but hey, stranger things in life have happened. Uh, you know, if anything changes, I'll give you a call back. And and all of a sudden, that other coach went really quiet on me, and I uh, couldn't get a call back, couldn't get a text back, and finally, I, I got a call from him one day saying, uh, hey, man, really sorry to do this to you, but I'm going to go to another program, and I said, yeah, no problem, thanks, talk to you later, bye. <laughs> he picked the phone up right away and called Joe and said, uh, do you want to do this? And he said, yeah, let's do this. So, uh, you know, a little more in-depth than that, we had some really long discussion, but I mean, I had a front row seat in Penticton for, for a lot of years watching Merritt come in and we had some real tough playoff battles with them and I, I just really admire Joe as a person and, and the way he builds his teams and uh, you know you, this year I guess maybe more than ever you, you started hearing the term old school coaches versus new school coaches and you know some coaches found themselves in some some hot water for the way they treated players and stuff and that was just something that I, I never have to worry about with Joe and and uh you know, it goes back to that recruiting principle that I have with a, a family being able to look them in the eye and say, your son's safe coming here and we're going to put him in a good spot and he's going to have a chance to become a better hockey player. And Joe certainly demonstrated the ability to do that. He's had a, a lot of success with Hockey Canada. He was the head coach for Team Canada West at the World Junior A Challenge this year. And, uh, you know, I know the tournament didn't go quite the way he wanted it to, but, uh, you know, for him to be a part of that Hockey Canada program, he just learned so much like I did with Team Pacific years ago before that. But um, he just checked so many boxes for me. And at the end of the day, I, I got to work with him every day, right? I mean, I live in, in Victoria, basically, and the team's two and a half hours away in Port Alberni. So my business is here in Victoria. Uh, so I'm not maybe quite as hands-on as I'm used to being. And, and so I really have to trust that that Joe's doing the job that, that I've hired him to do and I, I do in spades. I put my head on my pillow every night and feel real good about the you know the hands my team is, is in right now and I just try to lend support where I can and, and uh, so it's it's been fun during this uh, little pandemic here being stuck at home we've jumped on a bunch of recruiting calls together and kind of uh, reignited my fire a little bit to, to be involved in that again so uh, right. Yeah, but uh, no, Joe does a does a tremendous job and uh, well connected with the schools. And really, that's that's what it boils down to at our level is do the schools trust you to recommend players to go there, and and the schools trust you to take your players. And and for Joe, that's a, a resounding yes on both sides. Nice, nice. How does uh just for the coaches out there? So I mean, without having that track record, how would a new coach? get hired into that league if they, you know, I mean, maybe I guess if they played, if they played university hockey would obviously have helped sure. if they had some type of connections would help. But like, if, yeah, if you've never been in that league, how, how would you go about getting a job? I, I, you know, again, I hope I don't embarrass him by telling the story, but uh, Brandon Shaw's our assistant coach and, and he worked with Joe in Maris and uh, uh, Shazzy's from back East in Ontario. And, uh, you know, kind of climb the ladder of, mid, you know, minor hockey and junior C in Ontario. And he kept harassing Joe and Mary, like, hey, I just want a chance to come out here. And, and uh, you know, sometimes the budgets for assistant coaches aren't quite where they need to be. And, and the credit to Shazi, he drove out on his own dime and, and uh, got a job where he was working nights at a hotel in Merritt and coaching the team during the day to make ends meet. And, and 
you know, I, I look back to like my time with the Okanagan Rockets. I, I did that for chicken wings, basically. I, I got to buy myself a couple meals on the road. And, but as I said, I sold radio on the side and, and dreamed of the day where I could have a full-time job, right? And so um, there, there's a great expression I've heard in today's world with uh, social media and everything else that uh, everyone wants a picture at the, at the finish line, but nobody wants to run the race. And that really is, is something that I truly believe in, that if, if you want something, put in the time and home your craft and do it for free and just do it with a smile on your face and don't ask for anything and, and the opportunities are going to come. I didn't ask for a dime when I was with the Rockets and, you know, Brandon Shaw is a great example of a, a young man who wants to be a hockey coach and, you know, record this today. Brandon Shaw will be a head coach in junior hockey at some point. He's only 24 years old, but you know, his day will come. Um, but it's, it's the time and the sacrifice that you put in to sort of learn your craft that, uh, that gets you to where you want to be. There's just so many people who, who want the immediate gratification and don't want to put in the time that, you know, I just don't have a lot of time for. So, I mean, we're real lucky that, uh, I find I've always been surrounded by really good people and, and, uh, um, I think maybe you, you mirror what you, you know, you, you have in yourself and, and you attract those sort of people maybe. Right. But, uh, that would be my advice is you just yeah. got to find a way to, to, to get your foot in the door. And if it's a, a minor hockey team with a Bantam team or a midget team, just push pucks. Like that's honestly, that's how, how it starts so many times was what you did with us. Like you decided that, Hey, I'm just going to give up some time and come help these kids. And, you know, if it's because you have a, a playing experience and, and you can teach from that aspect, great. If it's because you have a passion for it and you're book smart and you've, you've you know, you've watched the, uh, you've watched other coaches and now you want to imply what you've learned. Great. Just, just put in the time and, and the results will come if that's what you really want to do. No, I love that. I think that's a great message to end on. And especially just for players run the race, right? Like do, do the work, put in the work, fall in love yeah. with the process of getting better. It's one thing I talk about all the time. It's uh you know, everyone wants that right now, right? And parents want it right now too. Like they want the explanation of why their kid missed one shift at the end of the game. And it's like, I mean, that's the good stuff. Like it really is like those little bumps in the road, those little times of adversity is when you figure yourself out and how much you really want it, you know, how much you really want to be a player and what you're willing to do to get on the ice. And same thing with the coaches and then everything else as you say, don't be afraid to run the race. So, I mean, I really... Really love that. You're a testament to that too, Dave. Um, I love your story. I think it's awesome. I really appreciate the time you spent here today and best of luck to the uh, Alberni Bulldogs next year. I know you're going to just keep getting rolling and, and uh, you know, incorporating what you're talking about through here, that authenticity, that accountability, the integrity, um, hiring good people around you. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be nothing but, uh, you know, great success for that program in the future. So thanks so much for, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jason. I appreciate the chance to chat with you and uh, good luck with everything. You're doing a great job. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you so much for being here today. I really enjoyed that interview. What a great perspective and what a great story uh, to hear Dave's story about putting in the work, being passionate about something, committing to a process and putting tools in your toolbox and building your network and just doing the right thing by people and you'll get rewarded. His own, his own personal story is amazing and all the takeaways, all the great little nuggets that he was able to offer us there, not only if you're a player or if you're even a parent, about asking the right questions, right? About taking accountability for where you're going to go and where you're going to end up. And, uh, and just by being consistent, right? Those personal standards, not the standards that he talked about as a team and then the standards that you can apply to yourself as an individual. And 
all the insights about being a player and about commitment letters and where to go and how to get there and, and what the right path is for you personally and how you should approach that that path. There was just so much good stuff there. Uh, I really enjoyed the interview. I thought that there was a lot of great takeaways, a lot of cool new perspectives, and a lot of things that should help you guys uh, out there on your own personal journey. So once again, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening today. Uh, we have some more great guests coming up. I'll keep them coming, and I really appreciate your support. Make sure you talk about this within your community. Share it, like it, subscribe, leave a review if you have the time. I know it doesn't take long, but all that stuff gets it in front of more people, and uh, and that's something that not only will I appreciate, but uh, those of you who get uh, exposed to it also appreciate it. Nothing but good things. I appreciate all the reviews and all the feedback about what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast, and obviously the, the, the more information that can get out, the better. So make the most of this time here during this COVID-19 uh, crisis, and, and I hope that you're learning to love your family and learning to slow down and, and learning to appreciate some of the finer points in life. I know we are here as a family and we'll keep trying to give you good contact here at Up My Hockey. Thanks. Stay safe.